Welcome back to Sector One, the first stop you should make for your motorsport fix. I'm Sid and I'm joined with my co-hosts Devon, Maris and Lily. And as we've teased all over our social media this week, we have a very, very special guest. We are joined by Michael Italiano, a Formula One performance fitness coach and also an online trainer. Thank you for joining us, Michael. This is, we're very happy to have you as our yeah. first guest. <laughs> Thanks team. Uh, it's good to be on. It's uh, always always up for a chat. Yeah, we don't know how we go up from this, so that's our one issue. No. This <laughs> never getting go. better. Yeah, the bar's set quite high now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next guests have a lot to live up to. So I'm going to start with a little question that I have wanted to ask someone who's Australian for a long time. Nothing to do with Formula One. Nothing mm. to do with that. But I, I like to impersonate Australians a lot. Yeah. It's, it's just this thing I do. I do accents all the time. Cool. I need to know how to pronounce one word. How do you pronounce yogurt? Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's yogurt. Yogurt. Uh, oh, there yogurt. you go. Well, yogurt. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm convinced I'm Australian at heart and I was just born in the wrong country. Yeah. Yeah, you guys, I uh, say you guys. I mean, yeah, it, it is, there is a bit of a pronunciation difference, isn't it? It's a yogurt to yogurt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very subtle. Very subtle, very subtle. So we're going to start by just talking about your your fitness journey, like how you got into the fitness world, I guess you can say. So like, where did your interest in fitness actually begin? Like, what was it that got you into this? Um, I, I'd probably put it down to my parents, I think, but from the age of six or seven um my father and my and my mum uh threw me in a lot of sports they threw me in tennis basketball football and just from a young age i kind of just adapted to this sporty lifestyle my my mum and dad were very um, athletic themselves they came from a basketball and football background so um they they pushed they pushed athletics quite um when I say pushed, they obviously, they gave me, my sister, the opportunity to play sport if we wanted to, uh, and, and we loved it. So I played sport my whole life. So that's kind of, you know, that passion for health and fitness was just kind of there from, from day one. And as I got older, um, you obviously start performing at higher levels. You start learning a lot about, you know, training, performance, nutrition, health. Um, and I got to, I think about probably the age of, 25 where i probably wish you know you probably get that sense in in anything really whether whether it's your education or or it is in your um, performance you always wish you knew what you didn't know back then and there's something that kind of like i guess um affected me as a as an athlete i was always injured um and i never knew what i could do for my body for my performance to to help with you know my injuries because it was just stalling my performance or stalling my opportunities that I, that I had in football. Um, so I look back now and I was like, damn, I, I wish I knew what I knew back then. Um, so that's kind of where uh, I started really just honing in on the health and fitness. Um, started reading a lot of books about nutrition, um, about strength and conditioning, because I just kept getting injured and it was just frustrating. Um, it really is a big, big frustration, especially when you know, any athlete or anyone out there, you know, you train so hard for something, you strive so, you know, so hard for something and then you something that, you know, brings you down. It's uh, it can be a, a bit of a mental struggle. So um, yeah, I just started from there. And when I got reading, I just realized I had a serious passion. I, I couldn't stop reading and I wasn't a reader. I never read in school. <laughs> I was terrible. 
uh, in school. So growing up uh, out of out of high school, uh, I started reading all these books about health and nutrition. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm onto something here. Um, internally, internally, I was onto something here. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the stay at that time, I was, I was studying um, civil and structural engineering. I was in I was in a engineering construction business. So I was I was in an office working nine to five. Um, really really good job. It was um, I enjoyed it because there's there's a bit of creative um, there's a bit of a creative sector to that. Um, but the more I was sitting at my desk, the more I really I kind of threw uh, some big life decisions my way. And you know one of those decisions I one of those questions I asked myself was, would I be happy if I was sitting in this desk in ten years time? whether I was a manager or, you know, one of the, one of the bosses at the time. And my answer was a straight no. I just thought, no, I don't want to be here in this office. So that's kind of when I decided to, I guess, pursue my passion. And my passion was in health and fitness. And I literally started the next day. I signed yeah. up for an online course and, and my father thought I was crazy at the time. Cause he's like, you know, you just, you spent seven years building this career and then, you know, you're going to throw it all away. And, you know, I, I respect that from my parents because obviously your parents are looking out for you, right? They're not, yeah. they're not, do, they're, it's not coming from a bad place. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're just worried about you. So, uh, so that kind of gave me a bit more fuel and motivation to go, all right, cool. No one backs me here. So uh, I'm going to go out and get it. Yeah. So it's you say, sorry, it's interesting what you say about um, injury and how mentally that was what kind of well, was one of the factors that drove you towards your career because I spent probably about 16 years of my life as a dancer uh, on and off but inevitably I injured myself and that's what kind of pushed me out of it because I never fully recovered I never really understood why it was happening I you know we couldn't really find a specific source or cause of it and it just it completely takes the passion out of it when you're battling pain and as you say frustration it just limits you hugely so it's really interesting to hear how that was like one of the factors in in your decision yeah, yeah. and you're spot on it i think it affects you more mentally than physically the um, injuries and definitely uh, there's uh there's a lot of injuries in dances i must say so uh i'm sure you're not alone on that one devon you're not alone the same happened to me oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i never recovered from it for like it's been like seven years i've never fully recovered and yeah. I've still got all the issues I had and it's just pushed me so far away from it, even though I enjoyed it so much. I, I just feel like, yeah. I feel like you guys are the sporty ones. I was never sporty <laughs> at all. Every time it came to PE lessons, I was like, what can I do to get myself out of this? But the only sport <laughs> yeah. I ever enjoyed was like ultimate frisbee. Oh, not cool. a sport. It's not a sport. Well, it kind of is. But to, to be honest, I'm just a curious cat. So like, you know, I was I, I kept asking why, why, why is this happening? And yeah yeah it's so easy just to, to to push away and 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 you know do what you girls did which i'm sure is the most very very common uh thing to do but i was more i was very curious and i thought no i, I need to figure this out and uh so yeah I, i'm glad i did yeah i think like sorry pushing through after you struggle with an injury that really shows that you're passionate about it because yeah. you're you're not going to give up somebody who wasn't as into the sport could say that's it, I'm never going to recover. But if you truly believe that's the thing that you want to do with your life, then an injury wouldn't stop you. Yeah. So you say you were sporty, you know, your parents put you into lots of sport. Did you have one specific one that you really loved that was like your sport or were you all over the place? No, I, I played football 
um, for 10 years. And, and I was very, very passionate about that. And then I grew out of that probably at about the age of 17. And that's when I moved into Aussie rules. So AFL. Mm-hmm. And that's where I developed a really, really big passion for it. And that's where I, I, I believed um, I, I had a, a very, very good talent for, for it um, based on how minimal experience I had and how I was developing the speed of my development. Um, so I, I really wanted to give that a, a really red hot crack, um, which I did. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, injuries kind of stalled me a bit and that and yeah, in a sense, it kind of did, it did derail me as well. It kind of lost my motivation a little bit there for a year. And, and uh, so, yeah, so that, that was kind of, yeah, my, my process when it came to sport. Um, yeah. Football and Aussie rules. So always, yeah. yeah round ball to the egg ball. So you, you made this decision. You're not going to sit behind a desk anymore. You're going to go into fitness and nutrition. Mm-hmm. What was like, so did you think, Oh, I want to be, a trainer specifically in motorsport or was it just I want to be involved in fitness wherever I can like was there a specific end goal you wanted to achieve uh at the time because I was moving into a new field I just wanted to learn as much as I could so um I I signed up to a very premium gym back in Perth um and I was very grateful there because the the two owners the two co-owners of the gym kind of acted like a bit of a mentor to me um that, that they were very hard on me so they, they, they made me work hard, but they also showed me that by working hard, this is, this is the success of what comes with working hard. So yeah, I wouldn't, I definitely enjoyed it there. I definitely enjoyed my time there because they taught me a hell of a lot. Um, not just educationally, but also in, in the, in the fitness industry, you need to work freaking hard, man. It's, it's, yes, it's an exploding industry, but there's so much competition out there. There's so much stuff out there. Like you really need to put yourself out there and, you know, putting yourself out there is a scary thing. Um, and, you know, my two, my two mentors at the time, they were, they were very, very direct uh, leaders and, and they, they, they never had any hidden agenda behind them. They, they tell me what, what, you know, how it was. And um, they kind of, yeah, they pushed me, they pushed me to a, a very, uh, <laughs> a very uh, hard part of my life where I was like, geez, this is, this is a lot harder than just sitting at my desk, clicking the mouse, you know, eight hours a day. But, you know, I was working like, gee, 14 hours a day. So I was, you know, my first client was 6am and I was getting home 9pm. So yeah, yeah, a bit longer than 14 hours. So I was doing that. And then from Monday to Friday, half a day on a Saturday, and then the rest of Saturday, the rest of Sunday, I was programming um, mm-hmm. because I had other clients, I had more clients coming through that I had to prepare for. So I literally was working seven days a week. Like my, my parents hardly saw me. Um but that was a choice, right? No one forced me to do that. I did that. Yeah. And the reason why I did that is going back to, because yeah, I, I had a passion for it. So um, that's kind of where I started. No, I didn't focus on uh, motorsports athletes. I just kind of wanted to start training people. Um, you know, the average Joe, the corporates, um, you know, um, the parents that just want to, I guess, improve their daily life. Um, and that was so rewarding just to, you know, help people with, you know, whatever their struggles or, or fears were. And, and uh, it's kind of priceless how, like, how you know how much of an impact you can have on people's lives. And the athletes started rolling in, so I was training um, footballers, rugby players, golfers, and uh, and actually a few motorsport um, drivers as well. So yeah, I, I I loved having the balance. I loved having those athletes, mm-hmm. but then I also loved having the people that I know. Uh, I guess I could relate to a lot, and that's just those you know those daily people that just you know they want to look good for their wedding or. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you're, you're a mum and you don't have time, you know, you lost a bit of time for yourself. Um, and, you know, you're struggling now with your health and fitness because of your kids. And, you know, my goal was to make sure that they leave the gym happy, smiling and feeling good. So that's kind of where I started, um, Sydney. And yeah, didn't think for one, one bit I'd be in, uh, <laughs> <been> in motorsport. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, crazy journey. And you say that you found like you, a lot of your motivation to do this is, you know, your average Joe. So is this is this why you've perhaps gone over to the online coaching side of things? Is this kind of to balance that now? Because obviously you play such a vital role in the F1 world now. You mm. also want to still get that rewarding feeling from training your average Joe. Yeah, definitely. So mm. when I transitioned from, you know, all these clients to Daniel, uh, I did struggle initially that first year because I had so much time on my hands and you know when you have so much time on your hand you kind of start second guessing yourself you're like am i doing enough here like is there other yeah. things that i'm that i'm missing that i should be doing um so yeah for the first two three years you know i just wanted to make sure that i was doing the, the best job i could for daniel obviously because he's he's my number one priority um and now that i'm a bit more comfortable in this role and and, and we have processes in place um i did really really miss that that element of coaching and you know, coaching that, you know, the average person and helping them with their, their struggles, their obstacles and, and their fears and being able to make a difference. So that's why I did start this, this online platform. And it's, look, it's very new. It's only been a year in, uh, we're doing some exciting things. I think we're launching something next week, which is really, really cool. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying that aspect because number one, it's something that takes my mind off F1. So yeah. when I, when I come home, from a race it's nice just to unwind and focus on something else because f1 can be a bit of a uh you know a, a mental struggle sometimes because it's yeah. just it, it can be a real roller coaster um mm -hmm. in motorsports so obviously you've got this whole online thing going on i'm actually <laughs> i'm a part of your little facebook group thing well i say little huge facebook group um and i did i did the chase the ace thing and oh, cool. it was it was so weird to me, you know, obviously doing all these videos and then all of a sudden you're in a Bahrain hotel room doing it like, yeah, it's just so, so strange. And you look at it like, how did you how how do you go into that? You're doing this 30 day program and you know, you have to be making these videos every day, I guess. And you have to be putting them out because you've got all these people waiting for it. How do you do that when you're literally traveling the world? Like, how did you manage to stick to that? Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. The chase the ace was just bad, bad planning on my on my time uh, <laughs> because it was the first challenge. I didn't really uh, think it through, and then I got to Bahrain and I was like, "Oh, damn! I need to film," and I don't have a space to film. Uh, so I was like, "Okay, that's something to note down for the next challenge. Make sure I know where I'm going to be the next thirty days." But uh, so uh, I actually got quite a funny story with that. I uh, I had to push the bed all the way to the to the edge of the wall. I had to put a table onto the bed. I then had to move like the, the coffee machine and I, I literally flipped the, I flipped the hotel room upside down just so I could get enough floor space to do those workouts for everyone in the morning. Did you put it all back? I did. I did put it all back. Um, Good person. The, I did. I, no, I'm not that guy. I'm not that person. <laughs> but, uh, the, the, room, the house cleaning weren't, weren't impressed when they walked into my room. But uh, yeah, that was quite funny. But uh, yeah, to be honest, to answer your question, I was just getting up super early. Mm -hmm. uh, I was getting up super early as soon as the sun rose, um, whack the 
whack the camera on and just go for it. And to be honest, that's, that's the whole point of this, the, the, the challenge. Like it's literally that easy. You just put your camera on, turn the screen on and, you know, and my sessions are 20 to 30 minutes. Those challenges were 20 to 30 minutes, sometimes even shorter, but just being able to consistently get moving for 30 days, that was the goal. And uh, yeah, we had a really good response for that one. That was, that was good fun. We still got uh, people in the, in the, in the fitness group, in their Facebook group, actually yeah. uh, doing zoom calls with each other and uh and doing the cards together so i'm i'm glad that's had a, had a bit of an impact do you think that um with online training there's it's obviously been around for a while but obviously the past year has brought that to light a bit more i'd say there's there's still a bit of or maybe not as much now but the stigma around online training and the whole notion that you're not really getting a, a proper workout and do you think that that's now changing and going forward we're going to be seeing more programs like yours that are very much a full-on workout commitment. Yeah, no, most definitely. I think COVID has, I wouldn't say exposed, but I think it's given the realization that you can do so much from home. Um, it's because we didn't have a choice, right? We had to train from home. So all of a sudden, all, our, all us coaches are getting, you know, very creative and, and showing people like how diverse training can actually be from the comfort of your own home. And you know, I've been training from home for the last, she's nearly two years now because we're in a little F1 bubble. So when I get back to UK, I'm not allowed to, you know, I mean, obviously we're in lockdown at the moment, but um, yeah, I'm not allowed to go out and, and go to a gym and, and, and stuff like that because we have to stay within our, our core bubble um, for safety precautions. So um, to be honest, it's kind of given me a bit of light and, and made me get a bit more creative with my own training. And, and with that, I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Now I can, I can, uh, I can do this for, for everyone else. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's just going to get, um, I think it's just going to go from strength to strength, home training, in my opinion. Um, I do still strongly think there's a place for gyms, 100%, um, because I am a big, big believer in, in, in communities, which is why I, I, I push my, my Facebook fitness community so much because we have such a wicked bunch of people. Everyone interacts. You find a, you find a gym buddy. And I, I think that's important. So, which is why I think there's still a place for gyms because, you know, each gym has their own separate community, you know, when you, with all your members, all your coaches, you have that, you have that socialization um, perspective. So uh, yeah, I think, I think there's a place for both. I think being online as well gives an opportunity to people who maybe wouldn't have thought to start fitness or anything like that, because I know I might be not as confident to go out to a proper gym, Yeah. but to have your programs, it really makes it more accessible to people like how does it feel to have all these people virtually following you and you've sort of created this whole community and they feel so probably makes them feel safe that they've got someone helping them along and think you're like sort of their inspiration yeah no I, I love it and it's something that I've that, that I love logging in every morning and, and seeing people's posts and, and people engaging with each other um, and that is, that is a serious barrier for so many people is the intimidation factor of a gym. You know, that's when I was working in the gym, that's the first thing I realized was when I had new clients and I'd bring them into the gym for the first time, I could see their face, you know, like, you know, the gym I was in is a serious gym. And what I mean by serious gym is, you know, there's music and playing, but not many people are talking because the people that are there, they want results. So they're training. So if you're someone starting out and you see some pretty serious people doing some really serious training you're going to get intimidated and be like wow I, I can't throw that that barbell around the way that 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 girl does you know like so 
the intimidation factor is huge. And that's something that I definitely saw being a coach firsthand is that that was probably the number one uh, barrier for people actually coming into the gym and starting a fitness journey was because they were intimidated. So yeah, I I think you, um, I think you're spot on there. Um, I think having something online where you can do your own program from your home or you can do any classes just on your, in your lounge room just makes, just makes it so much more comfortable for everyone. So how do you stay motivated? Because this is a huge thing, especially in coronavirus times. None of us are motivated to do anything. Yeah, like it's us. crazy that Sector One was born from coronavirus. Yeah. yeah. You know, we got motivated motivated for that, but the fitness yeah. side of things, the motivation isn't there. How do you personally stay motivated? I keep myself accountable. So I'll launch a 30-day fitness challenge and then I'm like, okay, now I have to train for the next 30 days because there's people relying on me. <laughs> so that, that's that's one of them. Um, second one for me, being a coach, uh, I've always wanted to be a very, very strong role model to whoever I coach or whoever is just, just I guess, following, following me, whether it's um, socially or um, my friends or family. Um, so I've always wanted to be, you know, the right role model for people. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to advocate a healthy lifestyle and positive behaviors, um, you know, it'd be very, uh, it'd be very hypocritical of me to, uh, to do the opposite. So, you know, I do it because I love it. Um, I personally need to train for my own, my own mental health. Like for me, it, it really does wonders for me from a focus perspective, just, I can just focus and be productive every day and it just makes you feel good. So I, I know I was like, you know, there are days like today where I'm struggling to train, but I know if I train, it's going to make me feel better. And I'm probably going to be more efficient with my work for the rest of the afternoon. So um, yeah, about being a role model, because that's, that's just what I want to, that's what I want to do as, as a coach. And I want people to, to, to look up to me and, and, uh, and yeah, I, I know firsthand from experience that it helps me as well. Mm-hmm. So obviously you are, the famous Daniel Ricardo's fitness coach. Um, when you're making him do all these horrific exercises, <laughs> do you sit and watch or do you get involved as well? Do you torture him by watching or do you do you help him out by giving him that motivation that you're you're better than him, maybe? <laughs> yeah, well, look, I have a rule, um, and my rule is as a coach, never prescribe something you can't do. Ah, yeah. uh, and so and that should be a rule. Um, I learned that at a very early early time in my in my coaching career and uh i've stuck to it since so to answer your question everything i get daniel to do i've done mm-hmm. and sometimes to be honest most of the time i'll do the session with him yeah um mainly because i'm competitive so i try and beat him and then he and then he tries to beat me and then to be honest that's a bonus because then he's working harder so uh yeah, it's a good dynamic to have so yeah it's, <laughs> a, good, it's a good dynamic until we get too competitive and, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's a healthy competitiveness. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Good. good. Glad, glad you have that competitiveness. Yeah. I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I miss it. So now regarding your online thing, I've mm-hmm. seen that you have more people joining, like you've got Pilates instructor, blah, 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 blah. Is this so, so what are the long-term goals with the whole website and online training thing? Is it, is it just to keep going, keep get growing, motivating more people? De- definitely. We, we, we Of course, we want to keep growing, keep, you know, helping people, changing people's lives. Um, you know, we're getting more world-class trainers on board, which is really fun because we're starting this cool brand where people can log on and not just get my programs, but they can get, you know, Pilates classes, yoga classes, you know, my, my strength classes, um, 
you know, functional fitness classes. So like a proper, a proper portal and proper platform where people can go on and just get anything they want. Right. Mm -hmm. Literally. So we're, you know, so we're, we're setting up that aspect at the moment, which should launch next Wednesday. And then also um, private coaching with myself with it on a, on a private app as well, which is going to launch next Wednesday. So um, that's a big one for me. That's where I'm actually going to take on actual clients again um, and not just Daniel. So that's, that's another exciting element that we're going to be uh, launching as well. So keep exciting things coming then exciting things to keep our eye out for. Yeah. I, lo- I love the fact you're bringing in like more more people to do different styles of workouts because you know strength training I am frail skin and bones yeah. like <laughs> I, I can't even do a push-up it's so embarrassing that's I try that's very common though that's very I common. can't even do like the the girl ones the yeah easier I can't, ones. Do I can't even ones. do that <laughs> no well, hang on. what, are, what are the girl ones are you talking on the knees like on your knees yeah that yeah. was the girl ones yeah. in school yeah the girl ones <laughs> And I, I hope, yeah, hope that name's gone now. I hope that name's gone now. But you shouldn't stereotype Sydney. I am not doing the stereotyping. <laughs> I'm just it was my school. You know, in school, I wasn't allowed to go out and do rugby. I had to do dance instead. The boys got to go and do rugby. We had I'm to there. do rugby. Like, like tiny frail me had to do rugby. So I just sit out <laughs> and be like, this is not for me. Thank oh, you. I used to love maybe sector rugby. one should um maybe sector one should follow one of your programs, Michael. And then we can all start doing our push-ups. That is that. a brilliant idea, Maris. That's you going should, on the ideas list. You should all uh, you should all film it on Zoom too, so we can all yep. compare. And uh, they're not girl push-ups; they're an easier progressive easier push-up. Progressive. Exactly, yeah. easier There's progressive girls push-up. out there that can yeah. do big go. boy push-ups, as <laughs> they're now commonly known. So it goes both ways. Yeah. Oh gosh. So moving on to more motorsport-related stuff, we are a motorsport-related podcast after all. So. We had, to get, we had to get there eventually. So we've spoken about how the traveling impacted your online stuff, but mm-hmm. how does the traveling impact your mental and physical health? Because it's got to be a lot. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I haven't really sat back and thought about that. But um, to be honest, it's, it's, no, it's no different to a normal season. Um, if anything, the only thing that's really changed um, with COVID is that it's it's made traveling a lot more difficult for us so I can't just hop on a tra- I can't train I'm gonna say train I can't just hop on a plane and go see Daniel and go train Daniel it's just not that easy anymore because you know as we all know borders are closed you need special exemptions so the traveling has been very difficult um, especially from a training perspective um, pre-season I didn't get didn't get to spend much time with Daniel at all because he was in America I was in UK then the UK borders closed in December. I had no chance of getting to him. So we did virtual training for two months, which was mm-hmm. the first time ever. Usually we're always together for preseason. So um, from a scheduling perspective, it makes things very difficult. We have to be a bit more flexible because things, <laughs> things are always changing. So there's nothing, you know, there's nothing locked, locked and loaded. Um, but mentally, I'll, I'll be honest, it's actually, it's actually made the weekends a lot easier. And the reason why I say that is because there's no fans. So when there's fans, Daniel, well, I say Daniel, the drivers have, um, they, you know, they have paddock club appearances. So they have to go, go meet special VIP guests. They have fan zone appearances. So they go to the big fan zone areas and they go sign things for, for the fans. And even, um, even in the mornings, there's always like a fan walk, so which takes about 10, 15 minutes where the, the drivers will walk. Um, through through a corridor before actually entering the paddock and I'll sign you know fan merchandise so 
that's none of that's there anymore. So when we rock up to to the track now, it's we have so much more time because he has less commitments. Um, there's no fans. Um, and look, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this. I'm not saying I prefer this. I love the fans. Yeah. By the way, I'm just I'm just explaining. Uh, I guess how it is now. Um, you know, the, the grid the grid isn't the same before a race. Like obviously, you, you'd love seeing the, the grandstands full and they're cheering before a race. Um, so yeah, it's, it's from a mental state. It's probably um, yeah. I don't, I don't think that from a mental or physical state, it's changed at all. Um, it's just, it's just mainly getting used to a few different external factors of, and, and managing, managing the schedule. Yeah. You talk about the paddock and, you know, not having the fans there and everything at the minute. I don't know about anyone else, but like, I've actually kind of been enjoying seeing it that peaceful and like, the drivers keep saying like, oh, we really want fans back. You know, Lewis hasn't been able to say best fans for a while. Like (laughs) he hasn't been able to say that. And that's the one part I am missing, but like, it must take so much stress off because obviously you've got to appreciate the fans once in a while, you know, they are supporting you. You've got to love that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's so much pressure to be who they think you are. Like, well, the, the, the you, you show to them all and you have to kind of live that up. If you're having a bad day, if you're upset with your performance, then you kind of have to deal with the fans after that. I say deal with, not really, but like, I feel like it takes a bit of weight off for drivers not to have that, have that there. Obviously we want fans back. We are fans ourselves. So <laughs> yeah, look, I, I wouldn't say get through the stress, but yes, it definitely, um, it, it, it definitely, uh, I guess, keeps them, it, it definitely, they're definitely a lot more relaxed, definitely, because, you know, especially after qualifying, if you have a bad qualifying and then they have a, a paddock club appearance, they have to put on a fake, you know, a fake smiley face yeah. and walk into the, you know, into, into the paddock club and, and meet all these guests. And, and, uh, and yeah, what people have to understand is it's not that they don't want to meet those guests. It's that, you know, these guys, these guys are paid to compete. They're, they're paid to perform. And if they don't perform, they're not going to have a job next year. So yeah. There, there's a big, big, you know, mental roller coaster going on there where all of a sudden, if you have a bad game in football, at least you can go back into your change room and then you can dissect it for an hour or two hours with your team. There's, you know, you, you, yeah. there's no fans that can, can touch those footballers. You know, there's it's complete zero access. So you can have a shower, you can cool down, you can, you know, have your thoughts and then you can kind of just move on where these guys are still in their sweaty race suit and they're told to go straight up and and say hello and and you know talk to people and put on a bright brave face if maybe they didn't have a good good result it's it's tough like people have to understand like this is their this is their livelihood like it's gonna hurt when they're not performing well like it really does hurt and uh so that is that is definitely one of the battles of having uh fans there is that you know there's some times where things aren't going to plan you do need to put on a brave face because these fans make the sport these fans Um, you know, they help your profile. They help you as a person because they're building your profile. They're your fans. They're, they're the people that are, they're your most loyal people. You know, they buy your merchandise. They follow you to races. Like that's, that's an amazing, you know, gift to have. So um, yeah, it, 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 they don't, they kind of like, I wouldn't say one outweighs the other because mm-hmm. the energy they bring to a race is unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going to Monza last year and not seeing, all those Ferrari fans was just, it just felt like a different race, to be honest with you. It really did. Um, Yeah. So. I don't know. I don't know how the drivers put on this brave face because after a race, and if I'm disappointed with the results, I'm in a mood for the rest of the day. Don't even 
think about talking to me because yeah. I will be rude to you. You know, I will throw in sly comments there and I'm not the driver. I'm just a fan. I just, I can't imagine it. I'm in such a tantrum after a bad race. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I don't, I couldn't put a face on. Like we saw in the podcast last week after the race, my face was just like, don't speak to me. I don't want to talk about it. So I yeah. couldn't just go and smile at people. Yeah, that they get thrown straight into the camera, yeah. into, into the into the media pen, and they just start talking. And it's funny because you know it takes years to build a good a good profile, and all of a sudden you you know you say one wrong thing out of emotion, and you can you can break it, you can break your profile just like that, you know. So because mm-hmm. people are quick to judge when they're watching TV, you know. Definitely. So yeah. it is tough. It is tough. But you know they're they're also they're also trained as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are actually going to be making um, a podcast episode to coincide with the mental health week in the UK. We're oh. going to, it's going to be in, about mental health and motorsport. And this was one, one of our main points is the fact, unlike footballers or m- many other sports, F1 drivers, they come out of their race, you know, we hear their team radio, you know, that's played everywhere. They're angry spurts of like adrenaline. And yeah. then as soon as they're out of the car and they've still got all that adrenaline pumping, they're put straight in front of a camera. They don't have that one little bit where they can just take a second you know quickly kind of go over everything and collect their thoughts put it to the back for a minute and go and go and speak to the media they have to do that straight away and we're like ah like yeah that's (laughs) that's how we feel yeah no and you're spot on and not 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 many people realize that's the way it is um uh and to be honest when, when there's people in the paddock there's actually fans waiting outside the garage so as soon as they come out of their car before Daniel's even walking to me, there's fans like asking for photos. Like it's crazy mm. how much exposure fans can get in F1. Um, you know, because I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I think there has to be a limit there of at least when they can, at least let them get out of the car and have a breather, like before, you know, they start needing photos. And so, uh, yeah, Daniel has like maybe like two minutes with me where he'll give me his helmet and, you know, that's kind of where... I come in where if it has been a tough race, I guess I can uh, help him just get back into more of a, a clearer mood or just, you know, give him some, some wise words before he walks into the media pen. So yeah. he does have about two minutes with me before uh, yeah, he does go in that media pen, which is a very, which is very, very important by the mm-hmm. way. It's important that, yeah, we can have a quick chat before he jumps in there because uh, yeah, that's when. It can uh, be pretty ruthless out there. I can imagine. Do you think, any of the restrictions within the paddock will continue after post-COVID. Um, mm. You know, this, it's a vastly different, even what we what we see on TV, it's vastly different from anything that we're used to. Do you think that there might be any positives from what you've experienced? I mean, I know you just said that it is a lot less stressful as it is, but, you know, for Formula One, it can't feasibly continue like that. But do you think that anything that's been brought about during COVID or... You know, anything that's been implemented can you see that being continued further on definitely definitely I, I don't have a clue on, on what they'll do but uh like i said the, the exposure to to all the fans it was it's, i reckon they're probably the most exposed athletes in the world um mm-hmm. literally like daniel comes into the to, to the hospitality for, for lunch and there's people there's people you know walking with him like he literally can't walk anywhere in the paddock without having fans there like exposed to you um sometimes just walking from the hospitality to his engineering room which is like 20 meters away sometimes that's a 10 minute task because 
they'll swarm you from outside and then you know you're all of a sudden you're signing 50 hats you know before you can even get to your meeting so uh whether or not they'll go back to that i'd be very surprised um because you know that's yeah and and maybe the way they regulate the fan zones and how they and how they perform that i reckon may change and i also yeah i, I do think the access that fans get within the paddock themselves I, th I think that will change but again this is completely my opinion i have no inside information about this so um that's just me making having a bit of a prediction on i guess keeping it keeping the f1 paddock safe separate as well yeah yeah i think that's really interesting what you say about Daniel comes and sees you straight after because people might just see you as his fitness coach who deals with his physical health, but you probably help with a range of other things like mental health and keeping him motivated and things. And obviously people see online that you're quite close friends as well. Mm -hmm. So you're probably more involved with the rest of his life as well, not just his physical health. Yeah, spot on. Um, most of the time, you know, pe people think that all we do is train, but it's it's not the case. Uh, once, yes, we're training pre-season and there's there's training blocks in between the season where we will train quite hard. But besides that, it's it's all about being a sounding board and just trying to manage in your lifestyle and, and staying healthy. Because, yeah. you know, staying healthy is tough, especially when you're, you're traveling different time zones every 10 days. Like it's crazy. And then, so yeah, a lot of emphasis on um, recovery um, lifestyle and then yeah just being a sounding board being being there for them when they, when they need you and sometimes it's completely away from the sport itself mm -hmm. this is this is back to something you said a minute ago how you know after the race you kind of take the helmet so i've got a question about the helmet and i can't <laughs> lie to you i don't know any of the technical terms so excuse the language um but you know like the plastic bits you stick on the helmet in some places like some mm -hmm. drivers have is that your responsibility in like the tear off strips? Do you have to know how to do that? Is that your job? Good question. So this is not my job. This is usually the, the helmet uh, contractors that would do that and set up the visors and um, the, the tear off strips, um, the drinks tubing for the races in through the, through the helmet. However, F1 decided they were uh, the the helmet contractors were not uh, necessary to the F1 personnel. So that was a skill I had to learn last year was to ah, put okay. airs on, visors on, drinks tubes, and I was uh, I was very nervous. So I won't lie because it's a it's a big big Hush up. Yeah, yeah. Um, putting the spoilers on the helmets and uh, so yes, because of COVID, I have learned a new skill, and yes, it is now still my responsibility. <laughs> Oh, I, I'm just like the worst, like, you know, cutting and sticking, putting stuff in a straight line, not for me. So hats off to you, <laughs> putting all that on the helmet. Just important basic, important basic, job. Like, yeah, like you got, you got to remove a bit of the padding to put the to put the, the drink straw in and then you got to put the padding back in. And part of you like, oh, wow, I hope I've done, I hope I've put the padding in correctly because what happens if you have a crash and then like the padding's not in properly? Like, so you start playing a little, little bit of mind games. So uh i like triple and quadruple check that what i do before uh every session is is right but uh mm -hmm. yeah un unfortunately that's been the case since covid hopefully uh, the helmet guys so usually we have we, we're uh, we're with a, a helmet company called ari so hopefully those guys are allowed back in the, in the paddock anytime soon because i'm a lot more comfortable when they I, i'm, I'm definitely wrong i'm very good at it now <laughs> I've, I've had plenty of practice but uh 
sometimes you just got to leave things for for the experts and the experts, uh, yep. i'm <laughs> very happy to leave that to them and well, um, this is something we were all very very curious about yeah um, and obviously you have experienced the, the life of a couple of teams now. You've been to Renault, you're at Red Bull for a bit, you're now at the GOAT team, McLaren. Best team on the grid, if you don't well, know. We're not be biased. <laughs> no bias here at all. I'm biased to Red Bull still. Like, I've still got my signed Daniel cap on the wall from Red Bull. Like, you know, I'm really biased. <laughs> we have no bias here at all no no nothing i can t i can tell there's uh separate teams in this because i can tell the, the facial expressions the girls girls pulled when you said that <laughs> yeah i'm thinking there is a little bit of bias in it with us um so obviously you've experienced the life at different teams how much does a team impact your position so do they get to say we want you to be doing this much training a week with daniel we want you to be doing focusing on his core strength do they have that much say uh from a training perspective no because i guess that's your role really that's isn't my it? role yeah um however their best interest is like my best interest is their best interest so yeah. obviously they want to make sure that one the driver is is in is in good um physical condition so yeah each each team it, uh, some teams don't really hold tabs on you some other teams do and and do ask you you know every race you know what have you been doing how's daniel feeling what's his weight um and and ask a lot more questions um which i'm completely happy with i'm, I'm happy to be held accountable from um, a team perspective but uh from my experience in, in 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 being in three teams it's that's not always the case it mm -hmm. kind of it's team dependent interesting interesting so sticking with the training program theme how much does your your program for Daniel change race between races? Obviously, we're now going to Imola. Not the best when it comes to tracks, but apparently this is more higher downforce. I'm going to say. Um, and so, does does your training have to? <laughs> thanks. <laughs> does your training have to change a lot to be tailored to this track we're going to? Um, very good question. So, our training at the moment does depend on the location we're at now unfortunately because of covid so we obviously don't have the facilities that we used to have access to based on the particular location we're in so unfortunately that does take a bit of a, a hindrance on our training and what we can do and what we can't do um i have made i guess adjustments to our our home training to be as as thorough and as and you know as good as, as it can be but um do we train differently for different tracks? Yes. So for Singapore, we'll probably train, we'll probably have a big, big training block before Singapore because Singapore is usually quite humid. So mm -hmm. physically it's it's quite tough. And also it's a very um, strong braking circuit. So it's quite heavy on your posterior chain and the calves. So um, we're going to make sure you're, you're quite, you're ready for that one. Um, also, we usually focus a lot on the, the, the hotter climates. So usually Budapest, uh, Abu Dhabi, um, where else? Yeah, Singapore also. But yeah, Budapest and Abu Dhabi are usually when they're around that time in, in I think Budapest is usually what, August? Yeah, early August. And then Abu Dhabi at the end, they're very, very hot races. Mm -hmm. um, so we do a lot of heat acclimation training, which is training in heat to um, help the body adapt to hotter climates and being able to perform at a high level in hotter climates. So yeah, they're probably the, the two main 
um, factors we look at. Yes, we look at the tracks, the physicality of tracks, and also the weather conditions. Still can't believe the number of kgs that drivers can lose in a race. And, you know, in the hotter climate races, that's, you know, probably most prevalent. Is that something that you particularly have to have to well, not not necessarily worry about but keep in mind in those races is it much different from say a, a slightly milder race yeah no i i definitely say you have to worry about it 100 because uh if if a driver is dehydrated uh, that's not a good thing and if a driver is dehydrated and you start cramping in a car that's going 300 kilometers an hour that's not a good thing either so uh it's so definitely true. Yeah, it's yeah. Our, our hydration protocol is probably the number one thing that we focus on in those races, one hundred percent, because um, thermal regulation occurs in the body, which is just overheating. Because the cock, you know, outside will be thirty five degrees, but the cockpit is probably about fifty five degrees. Because not not only have you got the engine heat, which is literally on you, like you feel the thickness of the heat of the engine. You also have, I say, you. I'm talking about drivers. Uh, have the, the fireproof suits on as well. So that's all of a sudden your body's trying to cool down by sweating, but these fire these fireproof suits are actually uh, preventing your body from cooling down. So all of a sudden, you know, your core temperature is, is, is spiking and uh, you're trying to, I guess, alleviate the, um, you know, these athletes from fatiguing because as soon as fatiguing occurs, um, your your athletic performance starts to, starts to taper off okay so the number one thing we're trying to do as a coach is to ensure that these guys don't fatigue and if they do fatigue uh they fatigue later on you know as late as they possibly can during a race um and and sometimes you can you can really see that the last 10 laps to go you know you know which the drivers are actually fatiguing and which ones actually yeah which ones are shining because as soon as you start fatiguing you're going to start losing one two tenths you know a lap I think what's really interesting is we can we see footballers and you can sort of think about the kind of exercises they do. Yep. But in terms of F1 drivers, they we see them do these weird and wacky things. Like they have these um, head braces on and we see you pulling their necks apart. Um, could you give us an idea of the sort of um, training things you do to help yeah. them with that? Yeah, so... I think so. I think you kind of said it there. It's weird and wacky because people have never seen it, right? But uh, in motorsport, it's very, very common. Like, if if you don't see a driver pulling on his neck before a race, you're kind of like, "What are you doing, man? Like, come on, pull your neck, will you? <laughs> Warm your neck up." <laughs> but uh, yeah, the whole reason for training your neck is because uh, the g-force that the car produces um, throughout a track, whether it's braking or turning or accelerating, so. Um, when the body um, experiences g-force, the, the main the main part of the body where the, the driver is going to experience g-force is is through their neck. Um, so, and obviously they have obviously have a helmet on, which 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 weighs. Um, actually, don't know how much a helmet weighs. To be honest, I'll get back to you. I forgot that one. I think it's yeah. I'll get back to you on that. But yeah. So, what I'm saying is, um, what we usually have is a neck harness, so a safe neck harness. And what the neck harness does, it allows me, the coach, to be able to um, progressively overload the neck from a lateral and longitudinal perspective as well. So um, back and forth and then um, your side flexes as well. So um, that's why we do that. So um, each driver has to have a strong neck. It's not just in Formula One, very common in motorsports, whether you're, you're in motocross, 
um, Indy, you know, you, you just need a strong, you need a strong neck when you're, when you're a race car driver. So um, we do a lot of that. Um, we've probably trained the neck the most actually all year round. That's probably the number one muscle we train the most. We probably train every second day, mm-hmm. which is a lot. <laughs> um, and we also train his core um, quite a lot because your, your, your body is fighting the car quite a lot within the car. So you need to have a good strong core. So your core being your abdominals, your obliques, your glutes and your lower back. So we train a lot of that and your calves as well. So obviously uh, accelerating and braking. Um, it's a bit different to us that when we drive in a car, how when we stop for a red light, we just gently press on the press on the brake. Um, or I hope you gently press on the brake unless you're, unless you're a hard, hard foot roller. But uh, uh, but with these guys, they're obviously slamming the brake because, you know, they're, they're trying to brake as late as possible, trying to get that car to slow down as fast as possible so they don't lose time. So it's um, it's a slamming motion. It's a re- they're putting a lot of force through their calves, hamstring, glutes every time on that pedal. Um, you know, there's like up to 21 corners sometimes and they're doing that for two hours. So there's uh, they have to be strong in that in that department as well. No, you must I tried. Be, um, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say you must be a good coach because we know that Daniel's the last of the late breakers. Yeah. So you must be doing something <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, I, I'll be. I'll, I'll thank you for the compliment, but I'd have to say that's definitely an ability of Daniel's. <laughs> I can't claim that. <laughs> oh, I would have taken the credit for that. Yeah, one. yeah. take no, the credit. I've <laughs> I've been on a sim before, having to press a brake, and I wasn't even strong enough to press the brake. Like that's like that's how weak I am but I couldn't even fully press the brake down to like break at a corner it, <laughs> I, it's quite embarrassing to admit but it was really really hard like it must take a lot like you said 21 corners yeah. you, can't, you can't imagine that yeah exactly there's like people have to understand this is a very very physical sport and yeah. the reason why people don't understand that is because I guess they can't really relate can you it's, it's hard to relate because you know you relate so a lot of people relate driving to driving to work or driving, you know, your, your kids to school. Yeah. But, so like you kind of relate that and you're like, well, how, how is that? How is that making these guys like so tired? Um, it's until you actually experience G-Force yourself, you could probably understand. And um, there's some funny, there's some funny videos on YouTube. If you haven't seen them where uh, guests, guests go in, in the passenger seat and uh, you know, you slam your brakes on going into the first corner and your head just falls straight into your lap because the g-force you just don't have enough strength in your neck to actually hold yourself up straight where their heads just fall flat into their lap um and uh so that's quite a some quite funny stuff that if people need to understand how uh, how strong these guys need to be to uh have a look at some funny youtube videos (laughs) that's given me immediate images in my head i can't i don't know who the guy was he's probably like a basketball player on or something and it's Uh, with lando driving he's like oh we're driving driving (laughs) yeah just sit in my head sit in my head um a little random question for you do you walk the racing line no uh reason for it is because Daniel is very experienced, so he doesn't like walking the tracks. Mm. Obviously, walking the track is a is a driver preference. Yeah. Um, there were a lot a lot of new tracks last year that Daniel had never raced on. So usually we would just grab the bikes and me and him would cycle the track and cycle the racing line, take some photos, look at some key 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 points that Daniel, you know, wants to hit some, you know, for some for some turns and we talk about it. Well, Daniel talks about it. I give my opinion, but you know, Daniel's, Daniel's opinions are what matters most, but uh, 
but yeah and then there are there are tracks where when the track closes uh, at night um f1 personnel allowed to run the track so you mm -hmm. can run the track so yeah if, if if you call running the track and cycling the track but uh and then yeah you do take you do take the racing lines but i haven't i haven't uh i haven't jogged all the f1 tracks yet mm -hmm. not yet <laughs> yet it's yeah, my goal it's my goal yeah so where was i going with this i had a brilliant question and it's gone as per usual i have the memory yeah. of a goldfish it was really good and everything oh god what last is your last time I walked the racing lines I've got I've got I've got it I've got it oh, she's back she's back there we go so I know you Aussies are big fans of the circuit of Americas but yeah. what other track are you a big fan of any any new ones I'm a personal big fan of Portimao now love it chef's kiss mm -hmm. but yeah favorite track uh I think spa from a track perspective is pretty special um yeah, that's amazing. From a race perspective, uh, just from like, I guess, a weekend hole, the Monaco experience is just insane. It feels fake. It feels like you're, in, you're doesn't feel real. So like, I, I love Monaco and I love Monza because of the Ferrari fans. Yeah, they just, I think there's like what, over a hundred thousand of them, you know, at the race and I think more actually. And they're just so loud. It feels like you're at a football match and <laughs> when you're on when you're on the grid before the race it's it's truly incredible so yeah i think from a track perspective we're specifically talking track probably spa but if we're talking weekend experiences i'd have to say texas monza monaco mm -hmm. see monaco I, I i don't see the appeal because i'm like it's just a bunch of rich people pretending they like formula one and i'm, like, I'm a real formula one fan let me go uh, instead <laughs> no, it's not. You need to go. It's uh, it's there's so much history to to Monaco in F one. Mm -hmm. Um, there's so much rich, rich history, and yeah, the track is crazy. Like mm -hmm. it is, it's so insane. Like you cannot make an error in Monaco. Yeah. You make an error, you're into the, you're in the wall. Like it's insane how you have to be there. Like usually when when I was in Monaco, Daniel, you know, just took out his his road car and he actually took me on the on the track and you know, you take one corner at 60 kilometers out and he's like, yeah, usually we're about 160 here. And I'm like, crazy. <laughs> like, so yeah, to be honest, I think you have to be there to witness it. And um, if there's one thing that's amazing about being on the grid in Monaco is that all the, all the apartments are literally on, on the track and there's just families just hanging out of their balconies, just cheering. Like it's, it's insane. Like it, the whole, the whole place erupts and, and yeah, I, I feel like you'd get that feel on TV, but again, I haven't, I haven't, uh, haven't watched it on TV for a while, but uh, if you have an opportunity, you wouldn't put, you would, you wouldn't want to turn it down and put it that you way. You would say no, no. I've um, recently seen quite a few videos on TikTok of people who live in Monaco and they've just like kind of documented the whole process of, um, of the track kind of being put together. And it's, it really blows your mind when you see just like road cars or people in I don't know specific turns and you think it looks so much bigger there than it does when you're watching it like yeah. it I mean Monaco we all know is one of the tightest tracks we race at but seeing it there you're like well why is it so tight when it looks that wide but it's just yeah. it completely messes with your, with your brain mm -hmm. yeah yeah you, you when you're there you realize how tight it is so to to come to a conclusion of this podcast episode with our very special guest. We would love, so our kind of theme for this, because obviously you're 
fitness coach was to answer the question many people have said are f1 drivers actually athletes um yes duh that's that's the short answer but what is your response to those people who say formula one drivers are not athletes um i'd probably say give me the chance to educate you on motorsport itself and then mm-hmm. i could probably change your mind yeah like oh like obviously i don't judge people that say that because i think people that say that obviously don't understand the sport them the sport itself and that's mm-hmm. completely fine because you know yes formula one is uh an international sport but it you know it's it's still very uh very raw in, in particular countries so yeah if someone said that to me i'd, I'd be like okay give me the chance to, to change your mind and if that's still not the case I'd ask them to go jump in a go-kart for two hours and then ask me how their body feels the next day. <laughs> oh, story regarding go-karts to qu- quickly let you know of this very embarrassing story. You know, bumper cars, you know, yep. nice fairground. Yeah. I went on them as a kid and got whiplash and now I'm terrified to get in any form of car, whether that be go-kart or actual car. Fun fact for you all. <laughs> They're pretty dangerous, those bumper cars. I won't lie. You can get yeah. pretty bad whiplash if you get hit properly. Yep, yep. Not fun. Not fun. No. Yeah, coming back to something we spoke about earlier, actually, I think the main thing people struggle to understand on the physical side is just because of how inaccessible the sport is to to kind of people like us. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but none of us are Formula One drivers, so we're obviously never going to be experiencing the same feeling. And I think even if people were given the opportunity to drive a Formula One car, you're not going to get in a Formula One car straight away and be at the speed that professionals are well exactly you're not going to be breaking that late you're not going to be going through the same forces so I think it is a lot about just not understanding and for somebody who's not as involved or interested in the sport as we are obviously we love you know talking to people like you that have a, a proper education and insight into the sport we can start to understand that but for people that don't even take an interest in the sport it's a lot to it's a lot to wrap your head around so I think I'd say that's the biggest the biggest misconception around it I'd say mm-hmm. yeah yeah spot on like if if it's something you can't relate to then you know it, it's going to be hard to to understand understand it you know it's uh it's like most things you know like if you can understand football because you can easily you can easily go down to a park and, and kick a football or you know you can go to a basketball court and shoot some hoops and and understand you know the physicality and the actual you know uh, skill it takes to, to to shoot hoops but uh like you said no no one has the opportunity to go in an f1 car you know those seats are built for those drivers only so no one has the opportunity so therefore no one actually understands like uh you, you know you ask me like what's it like to be you know what's the physicality like to be you know in a bobsled team i couldn't have a clue because you know it's you know you're not you can't just you can't just go to a theme park or, or you know like a uh you know uh i guess uh you know, a stadium or something and jump in a bobsled and, and try it. So I think that's where um, that misconception actually occurs is because you actually can't put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. Definitely. This seems like a great place to round up. So Michael, thank you for joining us on this thank episode. You. It's been absolutely amazing. Thank you for being our first guest. I don't know how we're going to top this, but no. we can try. We can try. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure you follow at Sector One Podcast on all our social medias. And we will see you very, very soon with another episode.